if you want to uh, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. But now, if you want to catch up with the study, the, uh, the first two chapters are online. Uh, CalvaryCalook.org or CalvaryCalook.com, one of these two will get you there. We looked at uh, these first two chapters at the beginning of the life of Jesus in this world, where God stepped into history and became flesh, and the flesh dwelt among us. And we see the, the wondrous story that was told to the, to the shepherds. We see the wise men coming from the east, and we spoke about that the last time. How Herod, in his search for acceptance, his search for total control in the situation, sent out an edict to murder all the children, and of course, Joseph in a dream was told to take the young Jesus, Yeshua, into Egypt, which he did. And then of course later he came back from Egypt when an angel again appeared to him in a dream and told him to take him back. But Herod's son, Archelaus, was now governor in Judea, and he was as mad as his father. And so Joseph, instead of going back to Jerusalem, or the Bethlehem area where if Joseph was convinced that this son he has was to be the son of God, then where better to be than Jerusalem? And yet, such was the, such was the paranoia, paranoia in, in Herod Archelaus' mind that they went to Nazareth. And we don't hear much more of him. We hear a little bit in Luke about how his parents had left him behind when he went on a trip to Jerusalem at his bar mitzvah and how he was found in the temple. But apart from that, we know nothing of his childhood. And here as we start Matthew chapter 3, it's 29 and a half years since Jesus was born. We're now in this situation, 29 and a half years later. And I'm sure Mary and Joseph must have been wondering, what is going to happen? How is this all going to start? How is this all going to kick in? Many of the Jewish people believed at that time that when the Messiah came, he would be this great warrior Messiah. The one who would deliver them from the hands of the Romans. The one who would raise again the throne of David. And that this Messiah would sit on the throne of David through riding into Jerusalem on a white horse with an army at his back. Well, one day he will. He will ride into Jerusalem on a white horse with an army at his back. I'm pleased to tell you that you and I are going to be one of the army. We're going to come back to the Lord to, uh, to sit and to reign with Him forever. And so, we have nothing about His childhood. We're 29 and a half years down the line. At this point in time, as there still are in, in Israel today, there are many people waiting for the Messiah. Indeed, probably in the last 10 years, there have been 40 people who have stood up and proclaimed themselves to be Messiah. And that's, that's going on since the time of Jesus. There were women in the Jewish population, very much like Mary, who were praying that they would be the vehicle for the Messiah to come into the world. And here he was, and nobody at this point really recognised him. I often wonder where the shepherds were at this time, how they had reacted to it, because it always amazes me that God uses the simple things of this world, and that's why I'm standing here this morning. But the shepherds were simple, and in fact, they were, they were so badly regarded in the time of Jesus that uh, they weren't allowed to give evidence in a court. <laughs> 
such was their reputation for their, uh, for their dishonesty. So to pick shepherds to be the first to see this Son of God coming in the flesh was, uh, I'm sure God must have been sitting there laughing, thinking, will, people, will anyone believe these guys? And yet, here we are, the start of chapter 3, verse 1, it says, In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near or is at hand. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So we talk about in those days, now you need to look at Luke if you want to get a timeline in this, because Luke was very meticulous. Being a doctor at that point in time, he seemed to have it down past his his historical timelines. And and this, he tells us, this point in time, in those days, was the 15th year of Tiberius, who was an emperor in, uh, in Rome. Now the 15th year of Tiberius was 29 AD. By all the historical records and all that we can tell, it was 29 AD, probably 29 and a half AD, because John the Baptist was six months older than Jesus. He was born to Elizabeth and Zacharias. You'll need to read the story of that yourself, because that's an amazing story as well. But here we have, we're in 29 AD. The last thing that was said in the Old Testament in Malachi was that the day would come, that Elijah would come before the great day, the great day of the Lord, that there would be a real turning of the people towards their God. And this was about to happen. Here was John the Baptist here now. For all that he came, we're saying in those days, this was the time between the Testaments, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Jewish people had heard nothing from God. 400 years of silence they had looked upon it. They were waiting for this Messiah, and Messiah, Mashiach, in the Hebrew just means the anointed one, or anointed. And anointed in the sense that, in the Jewish sense, that when you're anointed, you're anointed for a task, you're anointed to do something. And that is why, when we look at it and we see what's going to happen in this chapter, you know, the Holy Spirit anointing us, anoints us for a purpose. You're not here just to fill up the seats, you might be here to do the Sunday school. Or something like that Or be a helper Who knows But John the Baptist was here It would be six months later Before Jesus turned up And really at the end of the day John the Baptist was the last Old Testament prophet He was the one who would As Isaiah said here in chapter 40 A voice of one calling in the wilderness Prepare the way for the Lord Make straight paths for him So John was out there proclaiming it Tell the other people Anointed for the task And the first You know The first word of John's Ministry Was repent Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand Repent for the kingdom of God has come near And the first word of Jesus' ministry When he came eventually Was repent for the kingdom of God Is here And even when you look at Paul his ministry started and the first word he uses was repent. And repent is not a it's not a passive word. Repent is not about being sorry for your sin. We can all be sorry for our sin, we can all be sorry for the things that we do wrong, even the people who are unsaved are sorry at times for the things that they've done. That's a, a remorse that, that produces an emotion within you 
And repentance is not about emotion. Although it may be part of repentance can be this sorrowfulness that we feel because of the way we've lived our life. But repent is an active word. It's not just sorry, but it's a deliberate action. Something has to be done. And the best way I can describe this is, if you were in Motherwell, and I was in Kirluk, and I said, come to Kirluk. I wouldn't have to say to you, leave Motherwell and come to Kirluk. That's the obvious part of it. You have to leave Motherwell to come to Kirluk. If you want to come to God, you have to leave your sin. It's as simple as that. That's what repent is. It's a deliberate act. It's an act of will through your trust in Jesus Christ. I want to repent of my sin. I want to go a different way. I don't want to stay in sinful Motherwell anymore. I want to come to Holy Kirk. I heard that. I might be getting deaf, but I'm not that deaf. <laughs> anyway, so this was this was uh, what John was telling the people. You need to repent of your sin, and, and that's that's been the message that, that cascades down through history. That's that's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is repent. Make that deliberate act because when you do repent, when you do move from one situation to another situation. The changes will be evident in your life. If all you're going to do is be sorry for your sin, then probably the changes will never occur in your life. But there has to be a change. Repentance is a deliberate act. It's an act of will that says, I will not go this way anymore. I will go this way. I will not stay in the place of sin anymore. I will go to the Lord. And so, how do we prepare? You know, how do we prepare for the coming of the Lord. How does John tell us to prepare prepare for the coming of the Lord? He says, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. How do we prepare? By removing all the obstacles. That's how we prepare. If you want somebody to come to see you, if you want to be part of something, then you have to make sure that you get rid of all the obstacles in your life. It is a bit like, uh, I suppose, being on one side of the Clyde and on the other side of the Clyde. I can't get to the other side because there's an obstacle in between, the Clyde's in between you and me. And I find it difficult to get past this bit. So I have to go and I have to find, I have to make that deliberate act to find a bridge, something that will take me over the Clyde to get this thing out of the way. In this time when Jesus was, just before it, when there were big empires like the Persian and the Greeks and all the rest of it, if one of the kings, for instance, let's just say Xerxes, was going to go on a journey, about three or four months beforehand, they would send out a team to basically prepare the way for him to go. If he was going from Persia to Greece, let's say, then this team would, would map out a route for him to go and if there was any problems on that route they would sort it out. If there were bandits on the route then they would kill the bandits. If there were obstacles in the road, if there were, if there were great potholes they would fill them up. And that's exactly what John was saying here. And people would not miss this fact that this was a king coming. That their obstacles need to be removed. And, and how, do we, how do we get them removed? By being baptized for the repentance of your sin. Now, this baptism of John was a baptism of repentance. It wasn't a Christian baptism. Don't get that. You can read that in Acts 19 and a few other places as well. But this was a, 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 an act 
that the Jews undertook not the Gentiles, not anybody else this was John the Baptist speaking to the Jewish people because Jesus came first to the Jew and then to the Gentile the Jews would have the first shout at salvation and it's only through their rejection of salvation that we got it so we have much to be thankful for and, and the fact that the Jews did reject it you know one of the things about repentance as well is what I've noticed that with a lot of these kind of seeker friendly churches nowadays that there's not a lot spoken about repentance there's not a lot spoken about putting your sin on one side and, and, and going off to be with God about this deliberate act of will and it's not an easy thing to do and it can only be done if God enables you through his Holy Spirit to do it but these people were getting ready they were filling in the holes in their lives they were prepared to put themselves under a baptism of John so that when this Messiah came because again remember we've got to keep this in context the Jews were waiting for this great warrior Messiah they, they thought when he comes we can't miss him this guy's going to come in a blaze of glory this is going to be a great time and oh how wrong could they be so verse 4 it says John's clothes were made of camel's hair and had a leather belt around his waist his food was locusts and wild honey honey this again is is the picture that he came in the spirit of Elijah people would recognize this they would recognize it from the book of Malachi and I've got the scripture here I kind of paraphrased it before but it says in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5 it says see I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord he will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of their children to their parents this this they were expecting they were expecting to see an Elijah appearing on the scene now I don't know what's going to happen at the second coming of Christ I believe that Elijah is going to turn up there as well because I believe that on the transfiguration in the mountain when Peter and James and John were up the mountain with Jesus and he was, he was transfigured that Moses and Elijah appeared and in some measure I consider that to be some sort of war council they were getting ready for the day when Jesus would return and of course Peter started to build booths because he thought this is the feast of tabernacles you know this is God coming to dwell with us this is the time but it wasn't exactly the time but here we are here's a physical representation of John the Baptist coming in the spirit of Elijah and the Jewish people would really be enthralled by this if this is the spirit of Elijah and he even looks like Elijah because if you look and I think it's saying Kings you can see a description of Elijah and you can imagine it you know the long hair the beard the camel hair the leather belt around the waist and, and the honey running down his neck you know and all these sorts of things I mean it's just this wild man coming out of the wilderness with this message and it really was a fire and brimstone message repent for the kingdom of God is here so the people went out verse 5 to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan confessing their sins and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River again I say this baptism this was not the Christian baptism this was John's baptism a preparing of the way for the Messiah to come and baptize them properly it was a show of repentance a preparing the way now when we think about baptism you've got to remember that the Jews knew about baptism it wasn't a, an alien concept to them but what was alien was that 
The only people that were ever really baptized in Judaism were the people who had converted to Judaism. Jews never considered themselves to be in need of baptism. If you converted, became a proselyte of Judaism, then one of the things you had to do was be baptized into Judaism. But here we have a situation where the Jews were beginning to recognize their need for the repentance of their sin. And the way that they could show that was by what John was doing, you need to be baptized. And so they were coming out in multitudes to see what was going on here. Very often today, and as well in Jesus' day, the Jews thought that being a Jew was enough. That we're all going to heaven and all the Gentiles are going to hell. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Jesus came to tell them that you need to trust in the Messiah. You need to put your trust in Yeshua HaMashiach. Otherwise you're going to hell just the same as the Gentiles who don't. The Jew and the Gentile come exactly the same way. There is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. There is no name under heaven and earth by which a man might be saved except the name of Jesus. And that goes for everybody. When we looked at the Roman study, if you want to go back and listen to that online, then you'll, you'll realize what Paul was trying to say. That this doesn't matter whether you're the vilest offender. It doesn't matter whether you're the most moral man in the world. It doesn't matter whether you're a Hebrew. It doesn't matter whether you're a Protestant. It doesn't matter whether you're a Catholic. It doesn't matter what you are. It doesn't even matter if you're a good person. Only through Jesus Christ can we come to salvation. So there was almost revival here in, in, in Israel and Judea because there were so many being baptized and it was unheard of. So many Jews submitting themselves to baptism. Just as an aside to that, when Peter proclaimed the gospel after the Pentecost experience with the Holy Spirit and, and 3,000 were added to their number that day, how on earth did they manage to baptize 3,000 people? Well, for those of us, or those of you who have been to Jerusalem in the southern steppes, just south of the southern steppes, there's what they call these mikvahs, which are ceremonial baths. Now, this was a bath that the Jews would use, because if they wanted to take an offering up to the temple, they would come in their everyday clothes with their offering, and they would step down into this mikvah, which had stairs down one side and a, a kind of trickle of water coming out the underground springs to fill up this bath. And they would take off their, uh, their outdoor clothes and they would immerse themselves in the water, come up, and then they would put on their white linen. And then they would go up to the temple to offer their sacrifice. So there was a ritual cleansing in that sense. And these, these mikvah that were in front of the temple, there were hundreds of them. So these, these were the places that Peter would baptize all of these people. Whether the, the Jewish establishment were very happy about it, I don't know, but that would be what Peter would have used. And in verse 7, but when he saw, this is John the Baptist, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think you can say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. 
So what he's basically saying here is that the, the, the work of the kingdom is active, it's, it's dynamic, it's already here. The axe is already at the root of the tree. They've dug the hole round about the tree. That was a common way of getting rid of a tree if you wanted the root out as well, was, was to dig a hole round about it and then go down in the hole and chop the roots off. And then the tree would topple and it saved you having to chop it down and then drag the root out as well. So they did all the digging in the one go. So the axe was already at the root. There wasn't no preparation work to do anymore. That's really what John was saying. The axe is already at the root. You know, produce fruit in line with repentance. Otherwise, the Messiah is going to come and chop your tree down. And that's what repentance is. The fruit of repentance is the fruit of the Spirit. Peace, joy, love, kindness, long-suffering, and all of these things. And that's what we have to bear in mind. That's the same thing that we've been offered. The fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of repentance. When people see a change in your life, then you know that you've repented. When people don't see a change in your life, then there's no repentance. You need to go again. Otherwise, the axe is already at the root, as, as John says here. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these were the two big religious sects within Judaism at the time. The Pharisees were basically probably common people who had become very religious and the Sadducees were the aristocracy, um, the, the rich people in Judaism, out of whom the high priest would come. And the Pharisees never produced a high priest, it was always out of the Sadducees. And uh, of course, I always tell the old story that the Pharisees just kept changing the rules all the time. And they just kept making them up as they went along. And that's no fair, you see, fair, you see. So. And, uh, and the Sadducees, they didn't believe in life after death anyway, and that's quite sad, you see. So. <coughs> anyway, that's, the old ones are the good ones. So John doesn't mince his words here, and Jesus never minced his words when he was ministering amongst the people. John said to him, why have you you come out here to see your brood of vipers? I mean, he was liking them to Satan. The Jews would readily recognize a a, a reference to a serpent as being, being, you know, demonic, devil-like. And and these these were the ruling class. This was the religious order of the day. This was the Sanhedrin. The, the, the government of Israel and John's calling him a brood of vipers. So the place where John was baptizing was a place called Bethany, across the Jordan, or Betharaba. It's actually the Wadi Gara now. The Wadi is just a river. <clears throat> One of the situations that we come across here is that John was baptizing on the other side of the Jordan, away from Judea. Why? Because then he was not under the control of the Pharisees or the Sadducees. They couldn't touch him. He was out of their jurisdiction. If you were over the Jordan, you were out of the jurisdiction of Judea. So no matter what they said to him and no matter what he said to them, they were stuck with him because they couldn't do anything about it. Not today, but in Jesus' time, because there was not as much water being taken out of the Jordan, today there's, it's going to be a big issue in the next 10 or 15 years, because the next war probably in the Middle East is going to be over water and no oil, that's for sure. And there's so much water being taken out of the Jordan now that by the time it gets to the Dead Sea it's barely a trickle. And uh, of course the Dead Sea is compressing as well and, and shrinking. But in the day of Jesus... 
because there was always so much water flowing down the Jordan from the melt and snows of Mount Hermon or from the spring rains or the autumn rains it was a very unpredictable river it could be in flash flood for two or three days and then suddenly just collapse back to being uh, a normal river so John in some measure wasn't actually baptising in the Jordan he was baptising just off the Jordan in this Wadi Gera where there was a deep pool you can actually see it today but you're not allowed to visit it because it's actually in Jordan and uh, if you've got a good pair of binoculars if you stand up in the hills of Judea and look down you can actually see where the Syrians built a church there at one time or the Syrian church built a church anyway that's where he was baptised and there was a deep pool there so the Pharisees and the Sadducees had to come across the river and uh, he said to the Pharisees you know he said uh, don't think because you have Abraham as your father that that's good enough and they were quite convinced that as long as they were descendants of Abraham they were saved and John was putting all this to death and he said you know I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham now when he uses the word these stones he's, he's speaking about a, he's using a sort of definite article there he's talking he's not just about he's not just going these stones he's talking about these stones it's almost as if he's pointing his finger and if you want to go and read through Joshua when the, when the children of Israel crossed the river Jordan they crossed Hebetharabah just opposite Jericho just where John was baptising here he could look up across the plain of Jericho and see Jericho City there was nothing between there and the Jordan River and when the children of Israel crossed the river Joshua told them and the Lord told Joshua to, when the river was if you're familiar with the story God stopped the river the same as he did with the Red Sea and the people crossed in dry land and afterward Joshua said before the river closes up again every leader of every tribe go and pick a boulder out the middle of the river and build a cairn basically a memorial cairn to the crossing of the Jordan now that was just where John was baptising and that was the stones he was referring to you know if God wanted to he could raise up these stones for children of Abraham because they were put there by Abraham's children the children of Israel so God can do all of these things this pile of memorial boulders and John said in verse 11 I baptize you with water for repentance but after me comes one who is more powerful than I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire his winnowing fork is already in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire we're back to this thing about sandals and feet and all the other things that go along with it the Talmud, which was the sort of the Tanakh, what was the, the sort of Jewish tradition, was just, it was oral at this point in time. It, it wasn't actually written down for another few centuries, but it was oral at this point in time. A Jewish rabbi who had disciples, they were supposed to learn how to be humble and, and to submit to what their, their, their teacher, their, their rabboni, would tell them. And uh, one of the things that they were supposedly allowed to do was to undo the sandals of the rabbi take off the shoes and wash his feet and because it was such a because it was such a menial task and, and you need to think about this in the terms of Jesus when he washed the disciples feet 
because it was such a menial task, they actually introduced into the Talmud and the Tanakh that uh, although the disciples that it could be asked of them, it was something that really was too far down the scale to ask anybody to do, to take off your shoes and wash your feet. And so John alludes to that fact here, this would not be lost upon the Jews. This would not be lost upon the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were there because they would have a great crowd of disciples with them also. You know, he said, I'm not fit to take off his shoes or to untie his sandals. I'm way below that. It's a powerful statement by John about salvation. That this Messiah was so holy, so wonderful, that I'm just, I, I couldn't take his shoes off. We see the same thing as I say when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. I don't know how many of them were actually embarrassed by the thing, but certainly Peter was. And when he got to Peter, Peter said to him, you're not going to wash my feet. You're the rabbi, you're the teacher, I'm the student, this is not right, you shouldn't be washing my feet. And Jesus said, you know, unless I wash your feet, you can have no part on it. And of course the tradition was that that was the part that was in touch with the sin of the world and needed to be washed regularly. But Peter was already clean, Jesus told him. So here we have a situation where John in some measure is is repeating the same thing that Peter would repeat a few years later. I can't do this for you, Jesus. This is not right. It's not within my gift to give you. A powerful statement by John. And he says, you know... I baptize you with water for the repentance of your sin. This is you just preparing the way. But he will come and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now that's, again the word baptism here is is total immersion. It's not just flinging a cup of water over somebody. This is being totally immersed in water. That's the meaning of the word. I respect you, anybody else might want to tell you. Baptismal is the meaning of the word which means to immerse totally. So we have to be, instead of just being baptized in water, which we should be, as a Christian baptism, but we should be baptized in the Holy Spirit as well. And you know, to be baptized in the Holy Spirit like they were at Pentecost, it's not, it's not about the gifts that God gives you. It's not about that. You know, Jesus himself said it to the disciples, wait in Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit will come. And he will gift you that you might be my witnesses. That's what the gifts are all about. It's to give glory to God. It's not to give glory to man. It's not about standing up and shouting in tongues. It's not about shouting healing over somebody. It's about using the gifts that God would give you to glorify God, to be a witness for Jesus Christ. And that's exactly where John was. John was at a loss. How can this be, Lord? And so we get to a stage here in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized with John. But John tried to deter him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? So we're now another six months forward here. The start of Jesus' ministry. If you want to look this up and have a look through Isaiah and stuff like that, I don't have time to cover it all this morning. 
But the, the very time that Jesus went to the synagogue in, in Nazareth, and he stood up and he took the scroll and he read from the scripture in Isaiah that, you know, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor and to set the captives free. That was a, that was a traditional reading of Isaiah which proclaimed a year of Jubilee. And that was a year of Jubilee. That was the year when all the debts were cancelled, all the prisoners were set free, all the slaves were returned, all the land was made, was restored to its original owner. This is what Jesus was standing up to say when he came, when his ministry started. Behold, all have come to set the captives free and to proclaim good news to the poor. And that's what he proclaims to us today still. It's a year of Jubilee, it's a year of setting free. It's a year of restoration. It's a year of bringing back the things that were lost in your life and restoring them unto you. The things that the devil has stolen from you, God will restore to you because Christ came as, as a type of a year of jubilee to us. And if you're not familiar with a year of jubilee, every seventh year the, 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 the Jews would accept that there had to be a fallow year. A year when there was no crops planted, that everything that they gathered in the previous seven years was enough to carry them over the next year. So the land lay fallow for one year out of eight. And every seven times seven was proclaimed as a year of Jubilee. So if you'd bought or sold land or taken slaves or, or, or enslaved somebody, then you were obliged to set them free. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. To set the prisoners free and proclaim good news to the poor. And that's, John saw this as he came and as Jesus walked down that, probably the Judean side of the, the river Jordan, as he came down towards John the Baptist, John looked at him and saw, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Proclaiming good news to the poor. John saw his need for salvation and he saw his need for empowerment in God. If you've ever worried about your ministry and where your ministry is going and what you can do for God, will you think about John the Baptist? John the Baptist never performed one miracle. He never really saw one person saved into the kingdom of God. He got his head chopped off and his ministry lasted six months. That was his contribution to the kingdom of God. And yet, he would be called, in fact he himself said, he says, I, I will be the least in the kingdom of God. So don't worry about your ministry. Don't worry whether it's a tiny wee ministry or a great big ministry. It's not about us, it's about Jesus. It's about serving him. Because I stand up the front and teach the Bible or whatever, or the band is up there in the place. It's not about us, it's about him. Or gifted in different ways. Use them to God's glory. Allow Him to baptize you with the Spirit, to enable you to be that witness that you need to be for Jesus Christ, to, to empower that, that repentance so that the fruit of your salvation will be evident to many, that people will come and say, What is it that's happened to you? Why have you changed? What's to you? You're so much different than you were before. What has changed? And at that point in time, you can say, well, it's all about Jesus. That's your in. That's your way to tell people about Jesus. Because you're different than what you were before. You're different than the way you were in the world. You're now in the kingdom of God. Your home is not here. It's up there. That's why we, we, we find it difficult to tolerate what's happening in the world today. But don't let your head fall down when you look at Syria and Iraq and what's happening in Palestine and, and Israel. Don't, don't let your head fall down. 
lift your eyes to God because Jesus is coming soon we know that because all of this was prophesied look at Ezekiel, look at Isaiah take time to study them you'll find there's not a thing happening in this world today that God has not prophesied in advance and that's a whole different study and Jesus replied in verse 15 let it be so now it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness and then John consented so John was not prepared to baptize Jesus because John knew that this was a baptism of repentance and what does the Messiah have to repent of? there's no sin in him, we know that so why did Jesus be baptized? why did he allow himself to be baptized and, and basically a sinner's repentance? I'll tell you why because he wanted to identify with us he stood in our stead in baptism and he stood in our stead on the cross it was for us that he was baptized by John and it was for us that he went to his death on the cross to identify with sinners Jesus didn't need to be crucified he was sinless so why was he crucified because of our sin Jesus didn't have to be baptized here in the Jordan because he was sinless but he wanted to identify with us a lost and sinful race proclaim good news to the poor proclaim salvation to the world you know Jesus didn't have to become a sinner to identify with sinners and yet I found it so much happening in the church today people are going into sinful situations they say well that's the way you reach people now the way you reach people is to pray about it and God will take you into situations in fact I read an article on on uh, in Yahoo in the news yesterday that uh, there's a group in America have started a, a Christian swingers club wife swapping if that's what you want to call it and his, his whole basis for this is well you know swingers are sinners so if you want to proclaim the gospel as swingers you've got to become a swinger and get in amongst them and there's something twisted about that we see it for what it is but they don't and we see the problem we don't have to allow ourselves we don't need to become prostitutes to minister to prostitutes we don't have to become orangemen to minister to orangemen we don't have to become masons to minister to masons and we don't have to become catholics to minister to catholics we need to take these people who Christ died for them all we need to take these people to the Lord in prayer Lord show me the end give me the opportunity develop your gifts in me that I might be a witness to these people for you so Jesus came from Galilee John saw this I can just imagine the whole crowd standing stock still as, as John said look behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world and here was just this this rabbi from Galilee of little repute coming down the track and as soon as Jesus was baptized he went up out of the water at verse 6, 15, 16 at that moment heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him and a voice from heaven said this is my son whom I love with him I am well pleased now we don't exactly know what it was John here or Matthew here describes it like a dove 
it might have been the only thing that he could think of. To me, what was happening here, and what was promised by the Holy Spirit when we would be baptized with fire, was the Shekinah glory of God. Remember with the children of Israel in the desert, what went before them during the day? A cloud. What went before them during the night? A pillar of fire. This may have been a manifestation of the cloud that came down upon Jesus that looked like a dove as it descended upon him. And when we see it at Pentecost, it may have been a, a, a manifestation of the Shekinah glory and the pillar of fire that descended upon him because they didn't actually say it was fire, they said it looked like it, but it was similar to tongues of fire. It was like a, it was like a mighty rushing wind. It, it, it wasn't actually a wind, it was just a noise like a wind. So it's a, it's a real holy anointing this that happens to Jesus. The people must have been absolutely... Because it was obviously that something was visible. John saw it. How many others saw it? And it's the same with us. People might not see the anointing of the Holy Spirit coming upon us, but they should be able to see it outworking in our lives. There should be a visible presence of the Spirit of God in our lives that makes us the people who are walking in a way of repentance but not walking under some sort of cloud of judgment because this, hey, this is the year of Jubilee this is the time when God has set us free this is the time when we can walk in freedom we're no longer tied and chained to sin you know, often think about when we're chained to sin when we're chained to something sinful it always reminds me that when I see these, I, I, I'm a sucker for these animal planet things, you know, with the poor dogs that get left and abandoned and things. I'm sitting there crying into my dinner as I watch them. But when the dogs chained up to a pole in the middle of the garden, and it goes out to the width of the chain, and then it just tries to get away, but all it does is it walks around in a circle just constantly walks in a circle because this chain is holding it back and that's where we are that's where we were that's, we shouldn't be there anymore the chain's broken, my shackles are gone my spirit is free we walk in freedom in fact Paul said it to the Galatians he said you know it was for freedom that Christ has sent you free that you should no longer be chained to a yoke of slavery walk in repentance not in the sense of that you have to do this. If you love Jesus, you want to do this. That's what John was about here. He loved Jesus so much, he saw that Messiah walking down the bank and he said, you know, Yeshua, I don't need to be baptized. I don't need to baptize you. You need to baptize me. And that's where we should all come from. This is the same Holy Spirit that descended upon Jesus. And what did it do? What did the Holy Spirit do for Jesus at that point in time? It activated his ministry. From then on, the ministry would start. And that, in some measure, is what happens to us. The point of salvation, that filling that baptism of the Spirit, it should activate within us the gifts that God has given us, and it should spark off a ministry. And as I say, I don't know what the ministry should be. You'll know that between you and God. He'll gift you for what you need to do. But there are many things within a church fellowship, many things within your community. You know, there's many people say to me, I spoke to so-and-so last week, I was just sharing Jesus with him, and I spoke to him about my faith here, and I told this person and that person, and then they'll come back saying, but you know, I'm not really doing that much for God. And I think, well, you're doing more than me. 
These are the things. God doesn't keep league tables. Who's really good at things and who's not really good at things. In fact, it quite specifically says to people like me, don't aspire to be teachers because much will be desired to you. You'll be, dub- you'll, be, you'll be judged doubly. And that's why I feel sorry and that's why I pray for a lot of the ministers today and a lot of the pastors who are not really sticking by the word of God because at the end of the day they're going to have to make an account of that. Why have you not done it? And so, I want to encourage you this morning, just as John was encouraged, he set up his ministry, he did what God asked him to do, he found the Messiah, and he knew that as soon as Jesus came on the scene and was baptized, that was it. His ministry was over. My bit's finished. I've done what I've been asked to do, and now your concentration has to be on Jesus. And so, that's what I say to you. That same Holy Spirit that invaded Jesus, that same Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, dwells in you. Let him activate it. The only thing that stops him activating is you and me. Because we don't allow him. Allow him that free reign. Walk in the way of repentance and produce good fruit. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you and praise you, Lord, that, that we can walk in the way of repentance. Not because because of what anything that we can do, Lord, but because you can fill us with your spirit, Lord. You can keep us and bless us, Lord, and take us away from the things that are sinful, to walk away from them, Lord, and to walk after you. If anyone would, would, would follow me, then he must pick up his cross and follow me. So, Lord, help us to take that cross, but help us to take it joyously, Lord. A cross that is symbolic, Lord, that you've set the captives free, Lord, that you've given good news to the poor. So Father, be with us, inspire our hearts today, and fill us again with your Holy Spirit, that we may honour you and bless you in all things. For we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.